Open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. When I was a young boy, I uh, took a, uh, a challenge, I guess you could say, from a local farmer who said he would pay me 10 bucks to go and pull the weeds in his, uh, in his field, a couple acres. And um, as a young man, I thought that was good money. And so I took uh, gladly the challenge and thought, you know, I'll lick this by noontime and be kicking by the pool in the afternoon with a little walking around money in my pocket and went out and got on the row after breakfast. And I remember grabbing hold of the first weed and pulling and pulling and pulling and nothing happening. I remember I was just working on that thing for the longest time, must have been a half hour digging all around it. I don't remember if I ever got the first weed out of the ground before I finally threw in the towel and in humiliation made my way back to the, the house. They were all, of course, laughing at a good chuckle. They knew exactly what was going to happen. It was the first, I guess, of many of those experiences. Social scientists call it the planning fallacy. Where, you know, we always are optimistic and we get into a house project and we tell our wife, yeah, baby, we can do this in one afternoon on a Saturday on a weekend and three months later, we're still making our runs to Home Depot, right? We do it all the time. We, we uh, underestimate what it would take. We overestimate what we can do. It's really sad, though, when people do it spiritually. They underestimate what it would take to turn a life around. They underestimate what the problems really are. They overestimate what a few rules might accomplish. Maybe a few Bible verses, maybe drag someone to church once or twice, kind of clean up their life. They're always underestimating just how deep-rooted problems can be. Well, the book of Ephesians, among other things, was written so that you don't do that. So that you don't underestimate what the scope of your problem is and what the, what the magnitude of what it's going to take to solve your problem. In fact, Paul prays in chapter 1. He begins a prayer in verse 15, chapter 1, that goes really through most of the rest of the chapter. Well, I want to draw your attention particularly down to verse 19 because one of the things that Paul prays for is that you and I would understand, would comprehend what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. He says, in other words, one of the things that, 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 that people tend to dismiss, one of the things that people tend to overlook when they think about religion, when they think about Christianity, when they think about the people of faith or the church or whatever it might be, one of the things they tend to do is to dismiss the power. They don't think of it as anything particularly powerful or miraculous or otherworldly. They have, in other words, all kinds of ways that they, they come up with explanations in their mind as to why people would be so interested in God Or in some cases, why people would be living lives that are outwardly blessed or why people would be so uh, religious in some sense. They construct in their minds very naturalistic, humanistic, and very rational reasons why people would do this. You know, because for them, I mean, Christianity is kind of like that Easter bunny you get on uh, the morning of Easter. It's 
It's all sweet and chocolatey on the outside, but inside it's hollow. That's the way a lot of people think of Christianity. There's no power in it. Nothing miraculous in it. It's just a bunch of feel-good and, uh, and soul-soothing platitudes that some people latch on to, but it has no answers. doesn't really impact people. can't really change people. Well, Paul's praying that you would understand differently. He's pleading that the eyes of your understanding and your heart would be opened to realize that any person who comes to God, any person who comes to faith, any person who is saved is so miraculously changed that the only thing you can compare it to is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In fact, that's what he says there in verse 19. He says that this greatness of power toward us who believe was according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. Now, he doesn't just leave it at that. He doesn't just pray that we would understand that. He goes on with a sort of explanation whenever you come into the beginning verses of of chapter 2. He sort of unfolds for us what this power is and unfolds for us this understanding by explaining exactly where every single person is who is outside of Christ. Every person who's not a believer, every person who isn't by faith, hasn't come to God, every person who hasn't been changed, he wants you to know what their state is so that you can understand exactly why God is so powerful in changing people. This is what he says. He says, You were dead in trespasses and sins, chapter 2, verse 1, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, he wants us to understand the greatness of God's power. He wants you to understand that Christianity is not some natural, rationalistic endeavor that people launch themselves into. No, as a matter of fact, any person that you see who's genuinely in Christ, genuinely transformed, genuinely changed, have all been genuinely changed from exactly what Paul describes. He says every one of us were born this way. And he sort, of, he sort of summarizes our condition, the condition of every person born in this world, with three characteristics, we might say. They were dead in sin. They were dominated by evil forces. And they were destined for wrath. This is the biblical view of mankind. This is the biblical view of you. You may not feel that way. You may not think that way. You may look around at people around you and they've got vivacious lives and full calendars and lots of activity. They might be brimming with thoughts and creativity and emotion and excitement. They might have all kinds of things which on the outside would make it appear that they're very much alive. 
And you're not going to read anything like this on the cover of the latest magazine, Time or Newsweek. You're not going to find it in USA Today. You're not going to find it as a declaration in the halls of of education and scholasticism around the world. You're not going to hear it beamed through your TV. You're not going to hear any of this. But this is God's description of you if you don't know Him. He says you're dead in sin. You're dominated by evil forces, and you're destined for wrath. Now, just to sort of unfold this briefly, let me just look at these phrases individually, because Paul, first of all, says in verse 1 that you're dead. We were all dead. If we are born in this life, we're born dead in sin. That's what he says in verse 1. Dead in sin and transgression. There's lots of descriptions in the Bible for people who are not believers, people who are not in Christ. Sometimes you're called lost because you don't always know where you're headed and which way to go. Sometimes you're called blind because you can't always see what you need to see. Sometimes you're called hungry and thirsty because there's nothing that can really quench the thirst that's within. All of these things describe people outside of Christ, but one of the most vivid that you'll find anywhere in Scripture and captures the state of unbelief is this. It's spiritual deadness, spiritual deadness over and over and over again. The Bible describes people who are outside of Christ, people who are separated from God as spiritually dead. In the Old Testament, it's pictured like a valley of bones, a bunch of dry bones that are out there, just a bunch of people that are waiting to be called forth by the power of God and made into living creatures. But this is who you are apart from Christ. You are dead. And it is the consequence of sin. You remember in the Garden of Eden, God had planted a number of trees in the garden. All kinds of varieties, all kinds of things to enjoy. But he planted one tree in the garden, which was to be off limits. It was to be the one area where where Adam and Eve were to express their obedience and devotion to God by enjoying everything else that was given to them, but in that one tree they were not to eat. And well, of course, what happened? They fell into temptation. They partook of that forbidden tree. And in that day, the scripture says they died. In fact, Jesus, I'm excuse, God had warned them. He says, don't eat of that tree because in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. Now, the interesting thing is, When they did that, when they committed that act of disobedience, they didn't drop dead on the spot. So what exactly does that mean when he says, on the day that you eat it, you will die? Well, what he's talking about is spiritual death. They died spiritually, and because of dying spiritually, they they eventually died physically. This is what every person now is born into. They're born into a life of this kind of spiritual death. Spiritually dead to God, spiritually dead to His truth, dead to righteousness, and we might say dead to to true inner joy, true inner peace, all of those things that God really originally created for mankind, they're dead. Dead to all those things. And as a consequence, I mean, you can teach them, you can 
lead them, you can encourage them, you can train them, you can do everything you can to try to reform a person, you can drag them to church, you can put them before a Bible, you can have uh, devotions with them in your home, you can do all that, you can manipulate their outward behavior with rules and regulations, and you might even encourage yourself that from time to time they're sort of coming around, but at the end of the day, you are no more able to reform that person than you are to raise a dead person. Because they're spiritually dead. And a dead person doesn't respond to stimuli. I mean, you, you can take a dead person. This is sort of, the, I guess, the definition of deadness, right? The inability to respond to stimuli. You can, you can take a dead person and you can put makeup on them and you can fix their hair and you can dress them up and you can play pleasant music and you can call them forth and you can poke them and you can prod them and you can drag them. You can do whatever you want and you can do all of those things and nothing that you do will really change their state. This is what Paul's saying about you when you're outside of Christ. You're spiritually dead. And as a consequence of that spiritual death, you are incapable of responding to spiritual stimuli. You ever wonder why, if you're an unbeliever and someone puts a Bible in front of you, reads the Bible, it's really not that great, really not that interesting to you, maybe a little interesting in some historical detail, but really, why would people spend all their time doing something like that? You ever wonder why you're really not interested to go to church? Why you're really not interested to be around Christian people? Why you really don't pray that often? Why God's really just not that big of a deal to you? Ever wonder why? Well, this is why. Because you're dead. Spiritually dead. Spiritually unresponsive to stimuli. And because of that, the scripture says that you must be born again. That's just another way of saying that God has to powerfully work in your life to raise you spiritually from the dead, just like He raised Christ from the dead. God has to work powerfully in you by His grace and by His kindness and by His mercy and by the work of Christ. He has to cause in your heart and mind there to be an awakening of your eyes, a, 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 a raising, I guess you could say, of your spirit, an opening up of your heart so that you will respond to Him. This is, um, W.A. Criswell says, how does a dead man save himself? How does a dead man hear? How does a dead man feel? All the preaching in the world will not resurrect a dead man. Resurrection is the gift of God. God must touch the heart. He must unstop the ears. God must quicken the soul. It is as great a miracle as when God creates life. And He must create it within you. This is the Bible's teaching on your condition. It says you're dead in trespasses and in sins. That's really two words describing how, how this deadness uh, affects you. One of them, hamartia, is a word for missing the mark. It describes a person who takes an aim at something like with a bow and arrow and always finds that they're... they're they're veering off to the left or right. The other one is more of a word for just falling down. It doesn't seem to be an active kind of sense, but just someone who's always falling off the side, someone who's always falling in the ditch. 
And in the combination of those two words, it really describes the total condition of mankind. It doesn't matter if you're, if you're just sort of lackadaisically tumbling through life, or it doesn't matter if you're giving your best effort and making your best aim. It doesn't matter if you're on your worst day or your best day. The Bible says you're spiritually dead, unable to do anything, and unable to reach God because of it. You know, the old illustration when it comes to the efforts of mankind, one that a lot of us were taught when we first came to know Christ was that of lining people up on the east coast of the United States and asking them all to jump to England. And we understand that some of us maybe wouldn't make it very far, five feet, six feet. Some of us who are more athletic might make 10 feet, 15 feet, some super athlete might make 20 feet, but we'd all fall very, very far short. This is the picture of man in his efforts to reach God by his own, uh, I guess you could say, goodwill, his own good work, his own diligence, his own religion. You can't. God has... God has not worked in your life, if God has not worked in your life, then you are forever in the state of spiritual deadness. Not only that, but he says in verse 2 here, above and beyond being dead in your sin, he says you're dominated by evil forces. That is to say, in the state of spiritual deadness and unresponsiveness to spiritual things, Men and women are very responsive to other things. And specifically, Paul says that they live according to certain influences. Following, he says, the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. And following the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. He says, he says you're following the course of this world. That is the, the currents, the streams of of thought, uh, the reasons and rationality that governs everyone around you. You're just sort of carried along like some uh, giant inner tube, uh, uh, I guess, uh, uh, trip down a river. You're just carried along by the thoughts and opinions and ideologies and philosophies and psychologies and religions or whatever it is that are out there in the world. You're just carried along with them. And you might pride yourself that you are different than everyone else. You might assume that you, know, you stand against this or that or that you are in some subgroup and standing in the majority or whatever it might be. You're just in your own tributary. And every one of you following along in the same course, which is simply described as the course of this world. The word world there is actually the word cosmos. We get our word uh, cosmetics from it because cosmetics is all about order and structure and kind of you know making things better right when we put on the makeup well Paul's talking about the order the structure the way the world runs the value systems the goals what it pursues and what he's saying is that if you're apart from Christ spiritually dead to all that God gives and all that God calls you to then what's left but for you to be carried along by the values of this world, pursuing the same vain hopes, the same greedy goals, the same uh, self-important pursuits, the same self-centered life, 
And you may, you may think that you're the captain of your own soul. But the Bible says just the opposite. You are enslaved to the world. Enslaved to its systems. Captive to its values. As a matter of fact, if you have your Bibles, look over it at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Because Paul describes, he kind of describes the world here in different terms. He, he speaks about it as a warfare. He says, though we walk in the flesh, 2 Corinthians 10.3, we do not wage war according to the flesh. That is to say, we're not talking about material, physical things here. We're talking about spiritual and, and we might even say ideological things. Because in verse 4, he says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are of divine power to destroy strongholds. Or you could translate that, fortresses. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So he says we're battling when we as as believers are taking the word of God, we're battling fortresses. And those fortresses, he says, are opinions and their thoughts and their knowledge and their arguments. Or we could add to that, as we said, ideologies, philosophies, ways of life, value systems. These are the things that make up the world. And these are the things which carry along every person in the world, no matter what their particular ideology is, no matter what the particular opinion is that governs them. It might come from their media source. It might come from their group of friends. It might come from their education. It might come from anywhere. But they're feeding off of some system of values that have set itself up, set themselves up against the Word of God. Interesting thing here is a word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 10 for fortresses. The word can also be translated dungeons or prisons. Okurama is the word. It's translated sometimes prisons or, or uh, um, dungeons because this was where they would keep prisoners in those days. And they would always keep their prisoners in the dungeons in the basements of their fortresses. And so they were sort of one in the same word. It's just ironic because it really pictures where a lot of people are. They think that somehow because of their particular... Um, uh, rationality, because of their opinion, because of whatever it might be, men construct for themselves fortified towers, which they think protect them against the judgment of God, which they think protect them against the need for all the rules and regulations of religion, which they think exalt them above everyone else and make them more intellectual, more powerful, more successful, whatever it might be. And all the while, the fortresses that they're entrenching themselves in are really their dungeons. It's really their prison. Because Paul says you are captive and you do not realize it. You're carried along by something. You're carried along by some system of belief. And if it's not the system of belief that arises out of the Bible, it's a system that set itself Against the Bible. In fact, Paul, back over in Ephesians chapter 2, says exactly where it comes from. It comes, he says, from the prince of the power of the air. You see, if you're following one of these systems, 
despite all of your sense of independence and self-will, the Bible says that you aren't free. As a matter of fact, you're a captive of Satan. He has deceived you. He sold you a bill of goods, and he continues to do so. He continues to sell you on the merits of human wisdom and human reason and rationality and strategies. Continues to convince you that you can uh, trust in your own personality and cleverness and, and eloquence and skill and ingenuity. Continues to tell you that you ought to fill your life with entertainment and money and greed and lust and pleasure. Continues to tell you all these lies that that lure you in to one failed promise after another. And this is where Paul says humanity is. It's following along in these courses. It's following along according to the prince of the power of the air. And then finally there he says in verse 2, it's the spirit that's now at work in all the sons of disobedience. That particular word there, son of disobedience, it's a word that describes someone characterized by disobedience. The Jewish way of talking about how people, people's nature or natural bent is. They say a son of whatever, son of lawlessness. Even when Jesus claimed to be the son of God, what he was saying is he has a nature of God. Well, here when he says we're the sons of disobedience, he says apart from Christ, that's your nature. You don't want to obey God. You don't want to obey His Word. You, you rebel against it. And this, in fact, is the greatest proof of the truthfulness of God's Word. Your sin. Because you cannot obey God. In fact, Romans chapter 8 says it explicitly. If you go to Romans chapter 8, this is what Paul says. He says, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, verse 5. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind that's set on flesh is death, but the mind that's set on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. If, if, If you doubt me, just try it. I encourage you, plunge yourself into the Word of God and keep it. What you'll soon find is that the Word of God is true. That your heart is dead. That your spirit is unresponsive to God. That you're a captive and a slave to an ideology that set itself against the Maker. And not only that, because of all these things, Paul says thirdly, Not only are you dead in your sins, and not only are you dominated by these evil forces, but he says that you're destined for wrath. That's what he says in verse 3. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, not only does sin in its basic divergence from God's holy character involve the pollution in your life, it's also antagonism to God's will. And because of that, it brings guilt and, and not only do you need the removal of the impurities of your life, you need the removal of the guilt. Otherwise, you're going to stand before God guilty. And the Scripture says that everyone who stands before God that way will be held accountable to God's wrath. 
In fact, you may not realize it. You may think God loves you and God cares about you. But the scripture says the opposite. God is a righteous judge and he feels indignation towards the wicked every day. This is the state of mankind. They are under the wrath of God. John chapter 3 says, If anyone believes the Son, he has life. If he does not obey the Son, the wrath of God remains on him. You were born here. You were born into this state. You were born with this inability to obey God, and following it, you incur more and more guilt. But you were born guilty. You were born as as a broken individual, born as a corrupt creature, born apart from God, born, as Paul says here, by nature, a child of wrath. You see, you inherited just being a part of the human race, the wrath of God. When Adam and Eve first sinned, they incurred as representatives for every man, woman, and child who will ever be born, the wrath of God. And having plunge themselves under that wrath, they plunge all of the rest of humanity under that wrath. I'll say, well, that's not very fair. I mean, I, I started out under the wrath of God. You're saying that I was born into this state, that, I was, that, that, that basically I came out of the womb facing the wrath of God? Yeah. And you think, well, that's not very fair. I mean, how in the world, why in the world would God sort of use the actions of someone else in order to bring accusations against me and in order to sort of bind me into a certain state. Why in the world would God do that? Well, you can think about that a while if you want, but that's the way it is. The good news is that's not the only time it happened. You see, not only did did Adam, as a representative of mankind, incur the wrath of God, But God, in the riches of His wisdom and mercy, sent another representative. A man named Jesus Christ. Who came to stand as a representative of every person who was just like this. Who was dead in their sin. Dominated by evil forces. And destined for the wrath of God. And the scripture says that when He offered Himself on the cross... He stood in the place of every person who would ever have faith in Him. He stood as their representative to take all of God's wrath and to take all the punishment for their sin. These are the beautiful words there in Ephesians chapter 2 because after Paul gives all this description about mankind and his sin, he says to us in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. See, this is the good news. You're here this morning for whatever reason. Maybe here to be with family, join them for an Easter meal. Maybe here to appease your friends, uh, spouse, parents. And you're here and, and maybe you're thinking a little church will do you some good. Well, 
If you're thinking that, then you're vastly underestimating what the need is. You don't need a little church. You don't need a little Bible. You don't need a little reform. What you need is the mercy of God. What you need is the kindness of God. And the scripture says that if you will confess your state, if you will confess to God this state of spiritual deadness, this destiny of wrath that you're facing, this constantly being carried along in the course of this world, if you'll confess your sin to God, He's faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. By grace, you have been saved, Paul says in verse 8, through faith and not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Our challenge to you on this Easter Sunday is that you would hear what God's Word says about you and that you would hear what God's Word says about Christ. That you would hear that there's nothing you can do that would ever make God happy with you. But there's something that Christ did. And that you would lay down your rebellious life and receive Him as your true Lord and your Savior. I'm going to ask you to stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. While Darby's making his way up, I just wanted to encourage you. We'll close in a word of prayer, but we, we don't have an altar call here. There won't be a lot of stanzas of music. We won't ask you to come down front, but we challenge you not to leave here today without dealing in your heart with the Lord. I would encourage you to find me or one of our elders, one of our pastors, or find some believer that you know that you can go to and talk to them about exactly what the Bible says about your sin and about a Savior who was given on your behalf. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're grateful this morning to hear the gospel. And we're grateful that though we were dead in trespasses and sins, you did make us alive. That it was a miraculous and otherworldly work. That for us, this Christianity is no hollow thing. It is brimming with power and life and eternity. Lord, how grateful we are for the grace and kindness of our Savior. We just pray that He would be kind to those here today who do not yet know Him. Father, may You make them Your own. May you give them new life in Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.